uh, Skullboys. The Street Press Podcast with Sean Fraser. For a start, there are not enough white men doing podcasts. I've got to always support that when that comes along. I was talking to a mate today at a baby queue. We didn't cook a baby. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that yeah. was. I just want to thank you. Yeah, no, it was me. He wouldn't shake our hand until he finished putting on his glove. Imagine what he's like during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got you here for the podcast after your big night last oh. night, so I'm stoked with that. I get a thrill knowing that you're doing what you're doing. That's good. Well, I don't know what I'm doing today. We're just sort of just winging it. Did you moon Kylie Minogue? Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Street Press Podcast. My name is Sean Fraser. I hope you've been well. This podcast is all about the music industry. We have musicians on. We get managers on. Today, we've got a very special guest. His name is Jai Alatas. He used to run a record label called Below Par Records. You're probably wondering. Um, oh, well, I hope you're not wondering, especially if you live in Australia, what Below Par Records is. It was a punk rock record label. And Jai started this thing in his teenage years. He was in high school. I think he he left high school to go and chase and pursue his dream of running a record label and running a really good business. Little did he know how successful and how incredible it would end up becoming. Below Par Records is the record label that signed Kiss Chasey. They found Kiss Chasey. They also found something with numbers. They're also the reason that yellow card CDs were being sold in Australia. They headed over there. These guys, they were like... 18 at this point, flying over to Los Angeles to go and talk with drive through Records and <laughs> little kids. Well, I mean, they're teenagers, but you know what I mean? Like, these are young guys just standing in the face of some of the biggest record executives in the world and saying, hey, we've got a record label. We like some of the bands that you've got. I want to bring them to Australia. drive through just said, go and do it. This is a really, really interesting chat, and Jai is someone that I had on my list probably early days of this podcast, and it wasn't until just a couple of days ago I was like, I've got to hit up Jai. So I sent him an email. Within you know five minutes of sending an, an email to him, he got back to me. We were on the Zoom call a couple of hours later, and his story is one of true inspiration. If you're someone out there that wants to maybe start a record label or maybe you're in a band or, you know, you have general interest for business, Jai is the guy you want to be listening to. He has done all this without going to university. All he's had to his name is sheer hard work and a bit of naivety. <laughs> he's sort of in those early days, and he explains it in this interview, when you're 16, 17, you sort of, no one can stop you. All you can do is ask questions. You can have a crack at this, have a crack at that. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, then you just go again. And uh, he explains how those teenage years actually really helped Below Par become what it is. I mean, it ended up being bought by EMI just after Perfect Distraction by Something With Numbers came out and that blew up and obviously United Paper People blew up as well. Jai isn't just a former record executive. He is now doing some great things with a company called Creative Futures Collective. We're going to hear about all of that. He's also the director of 1994. It's a punk rock documentary that he filmed in 2006. He tried to get it released, but uh, he had a couple of dramas with licensing the music and the music that was used in there. I think he had 50 tracks in this doco and not all of them got the tick of approval from the labels, but he's the guy that created that movie. It has Fat Mike in it, it has Tom DeLonge, it has Mark Hoppus, it has Fletcher Drag from Pennywise. They're all in that doco and it's a cracker. It's actually up on YouTube at the moment. So after you listen to this podcast, 
go and check out 1994 punk rock documentary. Let me know what you think of it. But I don't want to waste any more of your time. This is my chat with Jai, the co-founder of Below Par Records. Hey, man. How are you? Good. How are you? Pretty good. What's happening in LA? Nothing that exciting. It's 8 p.m. here. Yeah. Uh, saw Green Day last week. Oh, nice. I didn't. I did not play. I was. Um, my friend was interviewing them for the Australian media, actually. So, like, they did like Sunrise Today Show and a project interview because they got for their new album. Um, and I got to go and hang out. It was fun. Well, that's unreal. I've uh, I've seen Green Day a few times. I've never been close quarters with them, I suppose. But yeah, I saw the interview on today. The other it was yesterday, was it? Or the day before, I can't remember. I don't know when it was, but they we, they shot it like a couple last week or two weeks ago. It was weird. They did it over Zoom. Yeah, yeah. I saw Richard Wilkins. He was the one that was like talking, and then I was like, "What?" Yeah. I was half wondering whether it was actually him doing the questions because sometimes those TV stations are like get someone else to do the interview and then like put themselves in the frame. <laughs> yeah, no, it was him. I heard his I heard his booming voice. He kept calling the album Dookie. I, like, I know, I heard that. that. <laughs> I'm <saying> Dookie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've met Green Day before. You, you did the doco, obviously. Yeah, I have. I've met, I've hung out with um, Mike before and I interviewed Billy for the doc. Uh, I didn't bring it up and they didn't, they didn't remember me and I didn't bring it up because I was there as a guest of, yeah, my friend who was doing the work, so I didn't want to talk about that. I love that doco. I remember it. Jeez, it was a while ago now. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's crazy. It's yeah, yeah. I think it finished. I think it leaked finally, two thousand and ten, maybe on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't do it. I didn't, do it. I didn't like it. <laughs> finally, enough, actually. And I should have brought it up with them. The way that it got like it leaked, right? Because I couldn't like I couldn't put it out. We couldn't put it out because of the yeah. music clearances. We just didn't have any money, so it just you know found its way onto the internet. And someone in Germany uploaded it. But the way that it got spread and the way that we started to get cease and desist letters was because Green Day posted it on their website, which is cool. That's how it blew up online. Yeah. Right. Because uh, I remember around that time, and it must have been them because it was definitely a band that sort of yeah, it was Green Day. sent me down that path and it must have been Green Day. That's, that's wild. And so it sucks that you haven't been able to put it out commercially or, or you know. Yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. And that's because of the record labels, right? Well, it's not their fault. No. I mean, look, the, the labels the labels and the publishing companies would license the music to us. It was just that we didn't have the money for it. And the issue was the amount it was going to cost to clear everything, because there's like 50 songs in there, so you've got to clear the, the publishing and, and the masters, um, was more than we actually spent on the production of the film itself. And the worst thing about it was the timing, right? So it was like, I think we finished it in like 2009. So 2009 was like the the pits of the record industry, right? There was no Spotify or anything at the time. Like, so, you know, record sales were at all time low. Um, you know, streamers hadn't come in yet. And same as like on the, on the film side, like the DVD market has died, but Netflix wasn't streaming yet. You know, Amazon Prime didn't exist for streaming things. Like, so there was nowhere for it to go. So even if we had, say, spent that, you know, it's going to be like probably three to $400,000 um, just for the music clearances, there was no way we were going to recoup that. 
there was no, like it didn't make business sense for that. But now, or like even, you know, five years ago, like it does make sense now because, I mean, times have changed again. But the, when those streamers were just trying to get content, 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 there was money out there for for projects, you know, for projects like this. So it was just, yeah, it was just, it was just this, uh, the timing of it. Because I can picture it going well on Netflix, you know, like I could like it's yeah. a different time nowadays, but I can picture like it working and because it is such a great doco and that people would uh, jump on there. Now, the first time I heard your name mm. was way before then. It was attached to obviously Below Par Records, which is a, a record company that you you created all this time ago. And um, you looked after a lot of great bands. I love the idea of the story. You were so young. How old were you when you came up with this idea to, to create the record label? Like, what's the story? Yeah, it's, you know, this is this is really good timing for me, by the way. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> I was 16 and when, I, when I started it. And um, it wasn't like I grew up with an idea of wanting to have a record. I didn't know what a record label was, like, mm. a day before or two days before. And the reason why I say it's good timing for this is because I just finished this book called um, Everybody Loves Our Town. It's a book on grunge. It's, a, it's the oral history of like the, the explosion of the Seattle sound in the Pacific Northwest and, and grunge. And a huge part of it obviously has to do with the label Sub Pop, you know, which is the first label that signed, you know, Nirvana and Soundgarden and Melbourne's and stuff. Um, and Sub Pop were like such an imperative part of that scene. And the way that we started Below Par, I say we, because I had, you know, a couple of mates who became my business partners, my co-founders, was I think it was like the year 11 swimming carnival at school. I went to Kingsgrove High School in Sydney. Instead of, I was a shit swimmer. So instead of going to the swimming carnival, I and me and my friends went to George Street Cinemas and saw this documentary called Hype. And I don't know if you've seen the documentary Hype, but it was essentially a documentary that covered that scene. And this is like the 90s. It's like 90-something. And we went, and we went and saw this documentary, and I remember just like a big part of the documentary is, is on sub pop. And I was like, man, this is so cool. Obviously I was listening to punk rock music. So I was listening to all the fat stuff and the epitaph stuff, but I loved how they kind of built this brand. And I'd never thought about starting a record label before, but I saw that in the cinema and I was like, I want to have a record label. And the next day coaxed two of my friends, Mark, and at the time this guy called Stephen Chalker, who's, um, I said, let's, let's do a label like sub pop, but like a punk rock label. And that was, that was that, that was in year 11 in high school. And, they said, okay. And I said, well, you need to give me 50 bucks each because I need to go down to the Department of Fair Trading and register the name. <laughs> and off we went. That's incredible. And so where does it go from there? It's fair enough to just, you know, head up to the Department of Trading and, and get the name licensed, but to get stuck in and have the have a proper crack at this thing, are you already thinking of bands you're going to sign? Are you, um, what's, no. what's going through your head? So I started, I was kind of going to like local punk shows and I was like, you know, I think you know, the first thing I ever went to was like the Vans Warp Tour, Manly. And then I started going to local shows and I got into local shows for $1 short and was like going to see them whenever I could and would take like a camera and like film them sometimes. Not, they weren't commissioning me to film them, mind you. Right. This, yeah. isn't, this isn't a business. This is with me. <laughs> but <laughs> Filming them and then like giving them the footage and they're like, cool. And like obviously never using it because it was shit. But yeah, going to, going to local shows and then just wanting to get involved and not being able to play any instruments or have any talent myself was like, okay, this is how I'm going to get involved in this local scene. I'm going to start a label. And not even thinking about signing bands because we didn't have any money was like, let's do a compilation because, as you know, like kind of around that like the late 90s and the early 2000s, that was how you heard comps, 10 bucks, easy. So I was like, let's do a compilation. Um, and that was kind of like 
that was the idea. So we basically just was, you know, how much is it going to cost us to print a CD, 500 CDs? And at the time, the back of, you know, the drum media and uh, at the time it was called Revolver had, you know, the the CD packages, 500 CDs for a thousand bucks or whatever. So, um, yeah, myself and Mark, who's my co-founder, Chalk, had left by this stage. And I don't think he even committed the $50 to, for the Department of Fair Trade. Um, so he was out. He's lost. It actually kind of was, to be honest. And he told me later in life he regretted it. But um, <laughs> still no. friends with him to this day. I love you, love you, Chalker. But needed 500 bucks each. Mark worked at Macca's, so he was able to get the $500. I didn't have any job. But what I did have was my mum had been saving for me to buy a car since I was like a little kid, like, you know, like the dollar mine accounts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when I turned 16, I didn't know this, but when you turn 16, you can actually access that money without your parents' permission. No. So when I was 16, which I was, I was able to get $500. I think there was only $500, and I definitely wasn't going to buy a car for $500. So I just took that $500 out without telling my mom and dad and put that towards um, this, this first compilation, which was called Caddy of the Year. And I had we had like 24 bands on it, and it was bands from like, like the US, Canada, Belgium, Sydney, like around Australia, like some some of the bigger bands, I think, at the time, like probably the biggest band on there was like Anti-Skeptic, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. They used to tour with Angela's Dish back in the day. Yeah. I think that was the biggest, that was the biggest band on that. But we had all these bands and they just found out about us through like, yeah, like the drum media. We put a thing in drum media saying, you know, no one knew we were kids. That was the other thing. Like people, so people were emailing us. That is a great point because as soon as they find out you're 16-year-olds, they probably wouldn't have cared. They'd be, oh, it's, it's, it's just kids doing their little um, hobby on the side. Yeah, <laughs> no one no one knew. Um, and I remember the biggest, the, the, at the time, what I thought was the biggest life hack was, because, you know, living with my parents um, in, in Bexley, was when the first CD came, we got mailed to us and I didn't have to pay for it. Like a band sent me their album for us to pick a song from to put it on the comp. And then we got that times 24. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever worked out in my life. I'm just getting free music now. Like yeah, getting yeah. CDs in my house and, you know, I get to put this comp together. So, yeah, we just we, we printed up 500 of these CDs um, and we just sold them at school. We, just, we would take them to parties and try and sell them at parties just in our backpack we go to a lot of local shows, so we had some bands like Unpaid Debt were on it and, like I said, Anti-Skeptic and some other local Sydney kind of pop-punk bands, um, The Mad Dash, and we'd go to shows without playing in Sydney and then, like, just sell it at their merch desk sort of thing. Right. Um, so we just, yeah, just kind of did that and eventually kind of got, got rid of them and that was the that was how we started. Incredible. And I love how it starts with $1 short. Uh, I know I know Trent, and I, yeah. I've, I've had a bit to do with Scotty over the years, but, yeah, they were so big uh, in the early noughties there. But from there, what's your first breakthrough with the label? There's a, there's, a, there's a few things here. There's this story. It's, like, in chronological order. Like, just, like, these little things would happen, and these little things just kind of snowballed yep. into kind of, like, where it eventually led us. But, like, the first band that we actually signed, we didn't officially sign them, but we identif- we found them. They're from the Central Coast. They were called Milak. They went on to become called Something Good Numbers. But at the time, they were called Milak. And Jake, um, who's a lead singer, yeah, uh, he he rep- he responded to this ad in the drum media. It wasn't an ad. It was just like the drum media posted this little thing that we'd sent them. Um, and Jake and I started talking. They end up, as Milak played my 17th birthday party, um, their first, like, little tour I went to was with them. I think I helped them book a show in Canberra at a church in Canberra. None of us were religious. 
But anyway, that was the kind of first band that I started working with. Uh, but we didn't officially sign them yet. The first band that we actually signed was this band called Four Amusement Only. And we put out like their first EP. And the way that it happened, because we didn't, again, we didn't have any money. There was no funding. No one in my family is like, you know, has music industry connections. I knew nobody in the music industry at all. But the way that that happened was I went to this music manager's forum and I was like 17 years old now. So the, the first compilation's out. We'd done a little bit of press. So the local newspaper, the leader, um, had heard about us and came to the school, took a photo of Mark and I at school and, and did an interview on Blowpipe Records and to promote um, the Caddy of the Year compilation. Yeah. We did a launch party at the Kingsgrove RSL. We flew <laughs> anti-skeptic up to play that. <laughs> and it was packed. Like it was actually, I think it was the first and last punk rock show they ever did there. Um, but, you know, we, we did that. Something with, numbers, something with Numbers played that. They may have been called Something With Numbers then. I'm, I'm not sure. But what ended up happening was we had the, the leader article and Revolver, which is, you know, now the brag, um, as it was known then, also did an article on us. And small articles, but did these interviews. And what I got, what I did was when I would take these CDs in my backpack, the compilations, I'd get my mum to photocopy these articles so I could give them to people. We're like, hey, look, we're, we're like a serious record label. We're in the local newspaper, The Leader, and here's a compilation. And one of the people that I gave this to was Richard Kingsmill, who I actually just read with. Just left down, Triple you know. J, yeah. 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 But this is, you know, I want to say the 2001, I met him at this music managers conference. He wasn't yet the director, uh, music director for Triple J. He was um, the host of the Oz Music Show. And I gave him this CD and I gave him one of the articles and like he was getting like hounded by all these music managers because there was a music managers for him. And I just went up to him and was like, hey, Richard, like I'm 17 years old. I'm in high school. I've started a punk rock label. Here's the CD we put out and here's the thing. And he goes, how old are you? And I'm like 17. And he's like, so you're in school? I said, yeah, I'm actually doing my HSC right now. And he's like, that's, he goes, that's interesting. He gave me a card. He's like, call this number tomorrow. It's like, it's the card for Triple J. Call this number tomorrow and they'll know that I've sent you. Um, and the person's name was Kath and she was a the producer there. So I go, great. So I take that card from him. I call this number the next day. She's like, oh, yeah, Richard told me about you guys um, and we'd love to do an interview with you and we want to send, like, Steve Kinane to your house to do this interview. And I didn't know who Steve Kinane was at the time. I said, yeah, sure. So Steve Kinane comes over. Mark's actually doing an exam um, for the HSE. Matt Hawks, who has now bought into the business for a thousand bucks, so we could buy some t-shirts. Um, he's our new, <laughs> our new business partner and gets stickers. <laughs> I love the little deals to get people in. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. So he comes over and does an interview with us, Steve Kinane. And what that interview was for, we didn't know at the time, was I think it was the summer of 20, 2001, 2002. They were doing this thing called DIY Summer on Triple J. And what it was was they had a record label, they had a management company, they had a promoter, like all these different facets of the music industry and people that had kind of done it themselves and started their own business. And they chose us as the label aspect of the DIY Summer. So all over that summer period, my voice was on the radio a couple of times a day talking about like the label, right? Nice. And, and we didn't know this at the time. And then they would play like Richard Kingsmill was playing like some of our like Australian bands from the compilation on his Oz music show every week as well. So it was like, they kind of played music. Long story short, the manager of For Amusement Only had obviously caught wind of this. He was trying to get the band signed to a major label. I don't think any of the majors were interested at the time. So he wanted to go down the indie route, like doing, doing indie EP, even indie label that can get Triple J support. 
obviously put to, okay, these guys are already have a relationship with Triple J. So he contacts us. We really, we all knew who the band were. The band were already like had a pretty big following in Melbourne yeah. and they do like these, you know, these um, like support all the big international bands. Remember that was a thing back in the day. If you had the big supports, you were like successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had, I already had this EP finished and basically they said, you know, do you want to put this out? And I flew down to Melbourne. I couldn't even afford a flight. My mum had to, you know, lend me some money to fly down to Melbourne. I didn't have anywhere to stay either, so I ended up staying. Before we'd done a deal, I had to stay, ask the bass player if I could stay at his house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said yes. But we ended up we ended up doing a licensing deal for this EP, and they already had, like, the Sum 41 tour, the first tour of Sum 41, that when they were touring All Kill or No Filler, they were the national support for that. And they also had the, I think it was 2002, Bands Warp Tour. They've been the national in Australia doing that. They had those two tours back to back. We ended up selling probably like close to ten thousand copies of that EP, oh, and we man. had we had no distribution. We didn't we didn't even I don't think knew what a distributor was, so we didn't have the distribution. We were just printing these CDs and couldn't sell them fast enough. I remember having to hitchhike to the Gold Coast for the Warp Tour date there with like two hundred CDs with me to give to the band. So, yeah, that was the first, like, official band that we put out, and that kind of set us up. And then the next band that we signed was um, Selling the Numbers. So I feel like the 10,000 CDs, when you saw them just, yeah, and you couldn't keep up with them. Now, Epitaph has a very similar story to that where they signed, was it The Offspring? And then, like, the CDs just started going like this, bringing back Green Day as well when they brought out Kaplunk. Mm-hmm. early days it was 10,000 CDs they went on the road and they had 10,000 CDs to to sell and they came back and I think one of the dads said oh so how many have we got to put back in the garage kind of thing <laughs> and, he, and they were like no we sold them all you should see how much money we got now you know you know how cool same thing happened with below par obviously you'd you'd seen me like who then become something with numbers um how come you didn't sign them all that time ago because we didn't have any money so like yeah. It was, we, we, we just didn't have any money. So like, you know, usually when you're a label, you you put a band in the studio because, you know, and, and to do that, you're usually, you're paying for them to be in the studio. So we didn't have any money to put bands into the studio at the time. So Song of Numbers actually on their first EP, the Barnacles and Stripes EP, which we were able to put out because we now put out FAO. And I believe that helped us get a distribution deal with um, Inertia. And so something we were like, okay, we've got it. We've got, we've now got a distributor. We've got a tiny bit of money for marketing. We've got some, some contacts at Triple J, you know, we were kind of, you know, moving along. Some of your numbers went in the studio, they'd saved up their own money and uh, to record their EP. So we didn't own that. We just kind of licensed it and did like a, you know, a split with the band where they got a majority of the money and we kind of distributed it. Is there a bit of pressure on you? Obviously they've, they've financed the album um, Barnacles and Stripes and then it's up to you to sort of, make sure it sort of gets out there. Of course, yeah. Um, but I think one thing that we really focused on was like building, and this going to sound really cliche in 2023, but was kind of focused on building a brand around Below Par. And what I mean by that is similar to how we thought of Sub Pop or you think of Fat or Epitaph when you look at the back of a CD and it's got that logo on there, you go, oh, yeah, like I want, I'll get this because of that. So we kind of put a lot of focus into like building a street team so I think at that stage we had like, you know, I don't know, five or 600 kids on the street team. We'd had that Triple J support, FAO, people knew FAO because we'd sold a bunch of those uh, EPs. So there was, but I think we were also in a kind of a good position to get it out there. So something with numbers uh, from where 
I'm from, from the coast. Yeah. And we, yeah. we had that EP and everyone was pumping that in school and stuff. That's a great EP. Oh, it's, it's so good. I'm not sure if it's on Spotify. I haven't had a look, but I was thinking no, about it the other day. Oh, it's not. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that EP. And obviously, um, you know, the the album that follows was Etiquette, wasn't it? Yes, Etiquette was the first album. Yep. Yep. Which we did pay for. That's when we started paying for their recordings. <laughs> yeah. Etiquette was insane as well. This band just got better and better, didn't they? Yeah. Where where do you bump into a band like Kiss Chasey? Um, I know you and Darren were pretty close as well. Yeah, I listened to your interview with him. On this. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, li- I listened to his podcast. It's great. I'm glad. I'm, I'm oh, how good! good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic, man. Um, yeah. So Darren was a great chat, and I know that you know him really well. And um, yeah. that that has to be like your first moment has to be you sell the ten thousand CDs. Your second moment's yeah. got to be you, you get something with numbers, but something incredibly magical happens when you when you guys land Kiss Chasey. Yeah, so that it is. That was the biggest, definitely our biggest band, like local band. But there was a couple of things that happened in between then that kind of led to the deals that got done that led to their, like, ultimate success. So off the back of something with numbers, there was this thing called the Nescafe Big Break. Do you remember that? It was a competition for, was it for businesses or? Yeah, like entrepreneurs and like young okay. yeah, yeah. athletes and stuff. They used to give, that give you like a $20,000 grant to do whatever. We ended up winning it in 2002. So I was like 18 years old and we win this nice big break. So it's the first money we've ever got. Because even when we're selling these CDs, like we're, account, you know, we're paying the band, we're, we're making like the smallest amount from these, from these EPs. Yeah. So everything's just like going back into the business. We're not taking anything out. And I remember... We entered Nescafe Big Break. I remember for the the final, I got Jake from Selling Numbers to come in and sing a song, like just acoustically. I was like, this is some of the talent I'm signing. And we won. We got $20,000. And I remember when they sent it, so funny, like just got sent to my parents' house in a, just an envelope that had my name on it. And then I opened it. It's like below par records, $20,000. Like no letter, no rules. Just like, you know, yeah. That's funny. Here's 20 grand. So what we did was we decided to go to America. Um, because a lot of labels that we were like, you know, inspired by, um, which obviously Fat and Epitaph from the 90s because that's stuff I grew up listening to, but we were really inspired by Drive Through Records and yeah. Vagrant Records. And we'd been talking to, to Drive Through, and at the time, none of the Drive Through releases like the Starting Line and Finch and stuff were available in Australia. Only ever got picked up by like MCA, like Midtown or something, or New Found Glory, was it available in Australia? And I was like, this is crazy that these records aren't locally available we should become the local distributor for a drive-through like we like below partial partnership with drive-through i'm like 18 at the time i don't even know why i think of this stuff but before you go on what i've gathered so far is you are so far beyond your years i think like uh for an 18 year old to have the balls to jump on a flight and go over there and just even dare to just say one word to someone from drive-through records I, I think it was because we just didn't know any better. Like I always say to people, like it's that naivety. You don't, yeah. you haven't had it's that good, experience before. Yeah, it's great because you don't know what you can and can't do. Yeah. You're just like, why can't I? Why can't I have this conversation? And when when you get older, like you start to go, oh yeah, that, that you, that's not going to work, and you just mm-hmm. make up reasons why something won't won't happen. Um, and a lot of the time, the thing that you want to happen sometimes doesn't happen, but better things happen. And this is this is a, this is a great example of that. So. We go, me, Mark, and Matt, who are my two founders, co-founders, we go to, we go to um, the US, we spend a week in LA, a week in New York, and the whole idea is let's, let's do a deal with drive through to do um, 
their label in Australia. And maybe we'll pick up some other stuff that we want to like records we want to put out. But let's go meet other labels. Let's go meet managers. Let's just go meet people and build our network. So we go over there. We go to the drive through office at sick. Like they give us like merch and it's just like a dream. It's like, oh my God, like all our favorite bands, you know, are on this label. Newfound Glory, who they signed, were playing like Jimmy Kimmel when Jimmy Kimmel was brand new. They invited us to come and like watch Newfound Glory. Jimmy, we're just like, this is the best thing ever. We don't end up doing a deal with drive through, right? Can't remember why, but it didn't end up happening. But there was some other stuff that we were doing while we were there, some other meetings that we were taking. And I remember we drove out like about, I want to say, two hours out of LA. We thought there was this band playing about two hours out. We thought it was closer. It was in this place called Lancaster, which is a real shithole. Um, <laughs> and it is. And we knew it when we got there. And the band that was playing was this band called Yellow Card. Yeah. And they hadn't kind of blown up yet. And we went and saw We loved them. We already liked Yellow Card. We've been listening to them for a while. And uh, we met their manager and we met their A&R guy because they'd actually just been signed to Capitol Records. But that record wasn't out yet. And so one for had, the kids was out. That's the record um, with Ocean one Avenue. For the kids was out on Lobster Records, but that was, yeah, that wasn't available in Australia. And they had they had this new EP called the Underdog EP that they wanted to put out before the, the Capital release came out. And Fuel by Ramen put it out in the US. And we ended up licensing it for Australia. So we ended up getting that record. Uh, but again, there was no, it was no, there was no competition. No one knew who they were um, mm. here in Australia. And then the other band that we, we met the manager management of and the label in New York was a band called brand new. And at the time they just had your favorite weapon out, which we really liked. Mm. And the manager said like, okay, you can put your favorite weapon out. Cause that's all we wanted. We just wanted to put your favorite weapon out. Cause we really liked that record, but you have to commit to putting the second album out sight unseen and and record unheard. That record was to become Deja Rontundu. So we licensed both of those records without hearing the second one for like, I want to say $2,000, something crazy, like super small amount of money. And I remember the manager sent that record when it was done a couple months later and I'm sitting there listening to Deja Rontundu for the first time and I'm just like, holy shit, this is going to be massive, you know. And um the way uh, this this does lead to kind of Kiss Chasey was, so we had, yeah, so we had Yellow Card and Brand New and they were like the first two international acts that we signed um, and then they both blew the fuck up. And, you know, because after that EP, Yellow Card goes straight into Ocean Avenue, which we also helped put out in Australia. Like if you had the CD to Ocean Avenue, Below Part Records logos on the back of it because they wanted, EMI wanted us involved in it because we were involved in kind of the building, the grassroots building of the band. Um, and that's kind of how our relationship with EMI started a little bit as well. So we had that. And then with Brand New, we had done this label development deal by this stage with a guy called John Watson, who... One of the best yeah, music managers in Australian music history. Music managers, yeah, ever in Australia. Um, you know, Silverchair, Missy Higgins, Wolfmother, Midnight Oil, Cold Chisel, et cetera, yeah. could go on. We, we'd met him and he really liked us and he wanted to mentor us and do like a label development deal where he would be able to like select certain records that would go out through his label 11. And at the time, his label 11 had a deal with EMI. And I remember I played him Deja on Tondu before it came out. And he's like, I want this to be the first record that we do together. So the first record that we did with 11 was actually brand new Deja on Tondu. Right. And that was how we started our relationship, that and the yellow card thing with EMI. Because EMI, I, I won't jump the story, but we ended up having a really good relationship with EMI. So that's how that started. Um, and 
I remember the, the I thought at the time I thought it was the peak of my life. So my favorite band still to this day is Blink 182. Yeah, me too. And <laughs> you know, I saw them, you know, 97 or 98 in the walk to our playing at 2 p.m. you know, in, in the middle of the day in Manly. And they were coming out to Australia on the untitled, the untitled album, and they invited brand new to be their support. And I was just like, yes. And so they got so brand new, <laughs> brand new got the, the tour. And then I got to go on the tour, you know, because I was like unbelievable. Um, so I remember like, yeah, I remember like flying down to Melbourne and you know, getting my pass and like walking in and seeing Travis like warming up backstage and like Mark Hoppus is just walking past. And I'd never met the brand new guys yet either. And um, you know, they're on stage sound checking. I just go up and you know, say hi to Jesse and everyone. And I was just like, this is. This is a mate. This is my this is my dream come true. Like I've peaked in. And life. how old are you at this stage? Nineteen. Oh my god. Yeah, and I, I peaked at nineteen. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so all of that to be said, that was how we kind of got brand new and yellow card, and that kind of led to like when you know actually Jake from Sunway Numbers put put us on to Kiss Chasey. They played with them down in Melbourne and said, oh. "You got to hear this band." We already knew Joel. Joel is a bass player. He was in the band with Ten Pin, who we knew. And we liked but didn't love the band. And then had this band called Kiss Chasey. And Jake was like, You've got to, you've got to check them out. They're really good. We went and we went and saw them play this major label showcase in Sydney. They had every major label down there and they played like absolute shit. And um <laughs> all the labels just like absolutely not. But we saw something and we're like, this band's great. Like, yeah. Like, we already we'd heard this song from the demo. We're like, this great. And we signed them like the next day. Um, on Carl's 18th birthday, we signed them and yeah, the, the rest is kind of history. But, you know, after signing them, it was because we had that deal with John Watson, because of Yellow Card and because of Brand New, that we had that relationship. That's They ended up going through that partnership with um, with Eleven and EMI. It blows my mind, all of that, just how it sort of all rolls into each other. And there's a lot of hard work. It doesn't seem like there's too much luck there. I've never been a big believer in luck. But they do say in the music industry it it does pop its head every now and then. But that is an amazing that is so amazing. And then obviously Kiss Chase, you go on and record with you guys, and their yeah. songs are amazing. The crowds are big, everyone's loving them. For that time, rock music and punk music was on the radios. They were on the radio a lot. And and numbers were were too. It was wild. I mean, I think both bands selfishly should have been bigger than they were yes me but, too. um but yeah no it, it, it was a, it was a great time um the, the crossover was so great all the bands that we had were really tight we didn't have a big roster i was gonna say drive through had a big roster i was i was like an epitaph had a pretty big roster and fat records and then i look at below pars roster yeah you had a shorter roster but really good talent everyone was very very good yeah we wanted the we we just wanted to kind of put out quality records and be able to focus because we were pretty, you know, under-resourced, um, you know, being a small small team, young guys with no money. So we just, you know, we did the best with what we had. I remember like, yeah, you know, Jake, obviously, Jake from Sunday Numbers, he was the guy that, because I would listen to him all the time when he would tell me stuff like this is good or check this out. Yeah, I remember when they'd done, they'd done Etiquette and I think Etiquette is an amazing record. They did that with this guy called Lachlan Mitchell. Um but it didn't really sell that much. That went. That was just like through our indie distributor. It didn't sell that much, and they'll kind of kiss. Chasey were kind of definitely at the time, even though they didn't even have an album yet. We're kind of like on this faster trajectory. The numbers, right. and I remember. I think it was like we went to Japan. The Kiss Chasey album had come out. 
the etiquette was already out. Kiss Chasey's first album was out and it was out in Japan and they went to Japan to play a show and I went with them with Kiss Chasey. And I remember that I was like in the hotel with, with the Kiss Chasey guys having some beers and Jake had sent me some demos, some new Sung Numbers demos for their second, which was going to be their second album. Perfect distraction. And I remember, I remember very vividly sitting, sitting on the floor of this hotel room and I'm like, oh, Carl, I think Carl was with me. Do you want to, do you want to listen to this new Sung Numbers demo? I think Darren might have been there as well. He's like, yeah, let's hear it. And it was Apple of the Eye. Yeah. And I remember we sat there and we knew, we all knew at that moment that was it, like that was the song. That was the song that was going to like make that band, you know, mm. like that was, that was going to be their hit. And because at the time, even though we had Kiss Chasey had gone through 11 and EMI, they hadn't committed to any of the other bands. I think brand new, brand new and Kiss Chasey. And we get that song and we played it. We, when I got back to Australia, I played the demo for, actually, we'd already started. We just started recording. We were self-funding the album and played some of the uh, rough mixes, especially that song, to John O'Donnell, who was the managing director of EMI at the time. And he was like, he says, I, I love this. EMI has to put this out, you know, and we ended up doing a deal. EMI ended up buying half of our record label and we did like a label deal directly with EMI because not just that song, obviously we had Kiss Chasey and they were doing really well, but like that was when he was like, oh, you have more than one band. So something with numbers sort of seal the deal at the end of the day, don't they? They're the ones that were sort of the dark horse, I suppose. And this song comes out or this demo that you've got and you go, hey, this thing's going to rip. You give it to them and they go, right, I think it's time that we bought half of you out. Yep. Yep. They're just like, how can we, how can we have a closer relationship? So it was that, because I remember having to put $10,000 down on my credit card for the studio and I was freaking out. The 10 grand, how many days in the studio was that? Well, that was like just a deposit. Um, that was, that was like one of three or four payments. So it's going to, I think we, I think we were going to put in 25 grand in, for the album or 30. We ended up spending more because then EMI came in and said, hey, like, let's, you know, let's let's do this record properly. The polish on that record and like the Kiss Chasey ones, it's just, it just punches through the speakers when you hear Perfect Distraction. You can tell that there's a bit of money <laughs> that must have gone into it, you know? It's not a garage demo. <laughs> no, no. But I will say, look, I will say this is this is kind of inside baseball. I think all up, like United Paper People, we spent 50 grand on. That's everything from like tracking in Australia with Phil McKellar, flying to Seattle to mix it with Barrett Jones at Rob Lang Studios and then master it in New York. That's 50 grand Australian. That's pretty good for 50 grand. I think we end up spending like 40 grand on, on perfect distraction. So, I mean, comparatively, if you're looking at, again, I don't know if I can even be saying this stuff, but it's a long time ago. There was a band from WA. And again, I don't know any of this for fact, but they were also on EMI. And you know they would spend they were spending easily over like 150 grand yeah. for you know, similar similar sounding stuff. So we were still doing everything pretty like DIY and and just being smart with how we spent that money. And obviously, you don't need to spit out numbers again, but return on investment. You were, you were doing this at a time when you were, CDs were selling. The, the industry was at a such such a good time. I felt when you were doing this, and I'm guessing that the money you invested, you should have done quite well with. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. So we, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another a funny inside baseball story about money, which is, it annoyed us at the time, but in hindsight, it's actually good. It's good for the band. <laughs> so we started, we ended up starting a publishing company and EMI was our partner on that. And we ended up signing some numbers publishing 
Um, and I can't remember what the advance was, but it was you know, a decent advance. And we were just like, you know, it's going to take them a while to recoup this advance. Um, and what ended up happening was that song got picked up by Big Brother. So, oh, yeah. so Big Brother at every commercial break would play Apple of the Eye. And that just generated so much money. Really? So we, yeah. And it, but it got to the point where, like, they, they very quickly eclipsed what we'd already given them as a, we thought we were going to be sweet for like a year or two or right. even more like with this advance. But it just, and then all of a sudden, like this role statement comes in, Oh, you owe the band this much money. What? We just advanced them this much. And it's like, damn, fuck this. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It was a, it was a, it was a good time. Um, it was a good time, but it was also, yes, it was a good time for selling CDs. Digital did exist. No streaming yet. Digital did exist. Um, but it was also like everything was getting slowly on the way down as well. Yeah. You know, like the, the peak, I mean, the peak was really the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. Um, and it was just slowly kind of tapering off as, as time went on. Well, it's a fascinating story. What is below par now? Is it non-existent? Is it still going? Are you still in it? What's no. the deal? So we ended up selling the whole thing to EMI. Yeah. I want to say around 2009. Um so yeah, so they they just acquired our catalog. I think we put out. Well, so so once that that deal was done, I was out of the label. Um, but I think one of the bands that we signed towards the end there was the Scare, mm. and Matt Hawks, who was my business partner in Below Par, he was managing the Scare at the time, and the Scare was signed to Below Par um, through EMI, and I think EMI wanted to like use the logo of Below Par and, and that. But that was, I believe, that's our very, very last release that we did through Below Par. Uh, but, yeah, now the now the catalogue, you know, just belongs to EMI and then EMI got purchased by Universal Music. So I think I went I went on the Universal website a couple of months ago and if you go to the Universal website and you look at the labels they own, you'll see Below Par on there. So it's, there you go. It's so still like it exists in a logo on a website. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, as far as we're concerned, we have nothing to do with it. It would, you know, some people ask me, do I regret selling it? Mm. Um, or do I want to have, you know, would I do another label at the time? It was the best possible thing for us because we sold right at the time when the music industry was at its lowest. Like to, to survive an indie label through that would have been pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, without more funding, but it was hard to get funding when, you know, record sales just kept dwindling. So we kind of, it was a good move for us to get out when we did. Um, But I do look at now kind of like with the resurgence of catalog and that sort of music and, you know, Kiss Chase's tour this year um, going, you know, I wonder, I wonder if we still had the label, like what the catalog would be doing now, you know? Yeah, yeah. Streaming, streaming and all that sort I of know, stuff. I know. I know it's just so different to the last time you were really in that chair and like really doing yeah. it. Like how much how much yeah. has changed since then? Uh, what do you reckon for bands these days? A lot of them are doing it alone without record labels. What do you think about that? A lot of them are using like Facebook ads and all that sort of stuff to try and promote themselves. A lot of this stuff wasn't available back then when you were doing it. What do you think about bands trying to go it alone these days? Do you reckon they still need a label to sort of get there? You know, I just I'm just not an expert anymore. Um, and I and I watch a lot of my friends, a lot of my really close friends over here in LA. So I've been living in LA for like seven years. Mm. Um, I actually moved here with Daz, with Darren Chasey. So I've had friends that are managers and work at labels and stuff, and have seen kind of like the resurgence of of the recorded music industry. But I just don't really know anymore. I, I think I don't think bands have a choice until they've gotten 
a lot of traction and traction now is just data. So like when we were signing bands, like, you know, you'd look at things like how many people are going to their shows and, yes. you know, like, yes. like, but you're also just kind of, is this a, is this a good band? Do I like this yeah. personally? Do I, could I see like, you know, the first time I heard Kiss Chasey, I, I thought it sounds like a pop punk motor race. And I think motor race write really good songs. So I was yeah. like, I want to sign this band. And I thought, you know, very charismatic singer like you know just had a lot of things going for them I don't even know how much that matters anymore I think like even for a label to look at you it's starting with the data and it's starting with the analytics and that kind of that traction that they're getting before they go look at all the, the other things like yeah they want to see like back in the day you're looking at a crowd you're looking at ticket sales and stuff but now they're looking at streams they're looking at Instagram followers they're looking at what's happening on Facebook are you doing any TikTok it's wild yeah. Yeah, because I, I heard that uh, basically even for a label, like the way the labels even hear about bands these days is they get like they get they get pinged if something starts going on somewhere. So let's just say TikTok, you get a video that starts to take off there, you they'll get pinged about that, so they'll kind of look into it. If you know Spotify or Apple Music is showing that you know you're hitting, I want to say it's like a hundred thousand monthly listeners when you hit that magic number, you'll get a call. Um, yeah, okay. but that's, that's just getting on the radar. So until that point, so bands don't even have an option, really. Artists have an option. You've got to like, you've got to figure out how to get to that point until like you can even start having those conversations to get. There's probably a lot of people that are out there and then, you know, they're wondering, <laughs> how do I get them to call? How do I get them to knock? And, and that's one of the things, just be, just be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, but I don't know enough about it. Like I don't I I don't know. Like if you were to ask me for advice, like how do you even hit that hundred thousand? I don't know. Yeah, how do you yeah. how do you, oh, TikTok? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, stuff. as long as they're all real as well. There's a lot of bands that are sort of trying to fake their way there, and that can be found out. Hey, what are you doing these days? You, you, you're doing some inspiring stuff with uh, Creative Futures Collective. What? Tell me a bit about that. Um. Yeah. So it's it. It also has a big part to do with my background and my story with the label because basically Creative Futures Collective, um, you know, we're creating opportunities like work op job opportunities for people in the creative industries, so music industry, film, TV, that come from underrepresented or disenfranchised backgrounds. And the reason why uh, I started this and how it started was because of uh, my, my background in music. But basically I moved to LA in 2016 and um at the time had this company called Locals and through that company I was working with some people like uh, some formerly incarcerated women and some homeless youth oh, out here in LA and some of them told me they wanted to get in the music business, like like work in, in the music industry. I was like, oh, cool, like that should be easy. My, my, my network is actually strongest in the music industry and I've been coming here for 20 years. A lot of my friends are pretty high up at major labels and, and wherever. Mm. So I said, I should, you know, let me see if I can get some internships for you guys. And um, I called a buddy of mine at uh, a big record company. I told him what I wanted to do. He put me in touch with the person that ran the internship program. And I said, uh, you know, how do we how do we get some slots? And he said, oh, are they in college? These the people that I want to get in. I said, no, they're not in college, they're homeless. Some of them are homeless and some of them have just been released from prison. And he said, well, you know, the only way to get into the internship program at this company is you've got to be in college or we save some spots for kids whose parents are friends with their bosses. Um, right. And I just thought that was kind of bullshit. And I kind of had a chip in my shoulder because when I did below par, I didn't go to uni. I didn't go, mm. I didn't, I didn't, I just, I just finished high school, went straight into this thing. Um, and what I really, I thought I was going to go to uni to learn how to run a record label. And what I figured out was by running a record label, I learned how to run a record label. Yeah. And there's nothing that school would have taught me that would have, like, if, if I went to school and like wasted time 
not to say education is a waste of time, but you know what I mean? Like, oh, that's right. You just, you've got to get on the tools, right? You just sort of have to get on the tools, the education yeah. and stuff like, like I, I did a journalism degree, uh, communications, but when I look back on it now, after working as a journo for 15 odd years, and I look back on what I learned, it's like, no, nah, I think I learned everything at work, you know, you working. You yeah. do. And, but, but, you know, there's so many people, and especially in America, like, it's like you, they, they pretty much like, you have to go to college to even do an internship. And who gets to go to college? Well, it's, you know, because college isn't free in America. It's not like it, no. you know, Australia and, and England and stuff. So it's usually people that come from privilege and wealth. So that's why, like, if you look at the industry, not just the music industry here, but film, TV, sports, whatever, a lot of nepotism going on. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people that, you know, look and sound the same. So I just kind of have this Passing chip the business up. through the family, all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, you know, and I just say that's dumb. And I just kind of have this chip my shoulder because of my story and how we started below par, no money and no family connections. Um so I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to find a way in for you guys. So launched Creative Futures with just because I was angry about that, that conversation. Um, took 10 people. Uh, five of them were the formerly incarcerated women, five of the homeless youth. Developed a program. So we ran workshops and everything like storytelling, financial literacy, a bunch of stuff like that. Got friends of ours to become mentors. So we had friends at like Spotify and Apple Music and Netflix and Vice and these sorts of companies. Um, and then found some companies to offer paid work experience without them having to be in college. And they were, at the time, this is 2019 now, it was the LA Lakers, the World Surf League on Spotify. Some of those people ended up getting full-time jobs out of it um, and we were kind of off to the races. And now we started, yeah, 2019, we started with 10 people um, in LA only. And now we have 1,300 people uh, around the world that have gone through one of our programs. We've got people working full-time at like Nike, Live Nation, Disney, Microsoft, all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it's been it's been a crazy ride, but it's all been, it's all been, it feels like it's my life's work. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, yeah, blow par and having a cool record label where bands do really well and successful and stuff doesn't really compare to how incredible the work you're doing nowadays is. And especially around Christmas time, you've provided, you know, so much for so many people. You know, I will say this about it. I, I, I don't look at what, I don't look at what we do as like, like a charitable thing. I don't look at it like, oh, like giving back. Like I honestly, we have like incredible talent that, you know, come comes through the program. And then for whatever reason, they've just been overlooked because mm. of, you know, their backgrounds or, or whatever it is, whatever it is. And I really do liken it to to what I did at the label, which was I, I was identifying talent. That was my skill. That's I could I was identifying talent, signing little talent. There's not much different to what I'm doing now. I'm identifying talent that's coming through a program and I'm helping, you know, just build that bridge to that next step. And, you know, I don't know if shake from selling numbers or darren would ever say that you know i played a part in changing their lives but i definitely did um so <laughs> but you know what i mean like it's, it's you, very similar yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels here well joy thank you for jumping on very inspiring story you changed the lives of jake and darren whether they want to say it or <laughs> not it is it is a really really cool story and i hope there's someone listening today that here's your story and goes, oh, maybe I don't have to go to uni. Maybe I can just plug away at something that I love, which is all you ever did. You just chased all the things you love, the music and the business side of things, and, and it worked out for you, and I'm really pumped for you. Hey, the Blink-182 record, the new one, what's your favourite song? Um, what's the song that sounds like um, Roller Coaster, Towards the End? Oh, uh, hang on. Is this, is this bad news towards the end? Bad news, bad news, Anthem 3. And bad.
There he is, Jai Alatas, the co-founder of Below Par Records, doing great things back then, incredible things now. Go and check him out. CreativeFuturesCollective.com is where his new business is at, or you can follow him on Instagram. I'll have all of that in the show notes below. But uh, yeah, long interview, but it didn't feel that way for me at least because uh, there was nothing I'm cutting out of that. I really, really enjoyed our chat. All right, it's time for this. Yeah, this is the part of the show where you can write on in, air your grievances. You can say nice things about the show. You can tell me who I should interview, all of that sort of stuff. Go to the streetpresspodcast.com forward slash letters. That is this segment. This is a letter from Scott. He is referencing an episode from a couple of weeks ago, which was the Slowly Slowly podcast where we had Ben Stewart, the singer, on. He was and has been the most requested man on this podcast so far. Scott says, well, 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 we asked and asked and you, sir, have delivered. Thank you. A man of the people. What an absolute daddy of an episode with Sir Ben Stewart. No one's ever called it a daddy of an episode before, Scott, so thank you. He says, my God, makes me want to marry him even more. Idea for the podcast. Okay, I'm open to this. He says, with good things coming to town... There must have been some mind-blowing artists in Australia. Great chance to get some monster guests. What about Patrick Stump? Love your work, man. I would have loved to have gotten Patrick Stump while he was in town. Patrick is one of the idols. I've got many, but he's up there. He's he's one of the uh, one of the great men in the music industry. One of the great front men as well. And one of the things that's really cool about Patrick Stump is his ability to somehow get all of those words into some cool melody. Um, obviously, Pete writes all the lyrics for Fallout Boy and Patrick just does his absolute best writing the music and trying to fit in all of those words. I will hunt him down. I'll try to hunt him down. I, I don't know if I'm going to get any luck with Fallout Boy, uh, with Patrick Stump, but I will send an email. Like I say each week, if you want me to interview someone or you've got an artist in mind, hey, it could be even someone local. It might be some band that you – in the – in the name of today's podcast, where Jai was talking about scouting people, you can be the scout and tell me about bands that I should follow, listen to, and maybe bring on this podcast. Go and check it out, thestreetpresspodcast.com forward slash letters. Write me a letter and I'll get back to you. If you love what I'm doing, if you like what I'm doing, whatever, you can support the podcast for as little as $4 a month. Um, the podcast is always free, of course. So none of this changes. But if you want a few little extras, go and check out the website. That's also in the show notes. Long episode today, but for good reason. Jai was a legend. All right, I'll have your ears back here next week. It's going to be a special episode. Till then, ta-da. Ta-da.